Um, my name's Jo, I'm with Unconscious, I'm just doing a little bit of organising. Uh, the other important thing for me to say is a huge thank you to Arts Council England, who do the, are the main sponsors for Cole Festival. And today, you'll be looking forward to, we've got Chloe Garner, who is the Artistic Director of the Festival, talking with Jane Comain about poetry and class politics in the age of austerity. So my problem in introducing Jane is that she's such a multitasker around poetry that I don't really know where to begin. This year alone, she's completing her Gerwood Compton Poetry Fellowship. She's also just had her first full-length collection of poems published, and she's brought some of those with her today, so you'll see them at the front desk. And then, of course, she's celebrating 10 years in business with her Nine Arches Press, publishing 10 books per year. You know, so it's just a... I feel an amazing achievement. Um, but she grew up in Coventry, come over today from Warwickshire, um, and she worked there for 10 years in museums before going full-time into poetry, I think. Um, and it's, I think this rootedness in the Midlands is a really important part of her poetry and her politics, the industrial heritage there and the rural edgelands. I heard her recently on Radio 4's Start the Week, and she's talking passionately about how manufacturing making things so important to the identity, the sense of identity of many of the Midlands towns, and uh, how then they had to cope with the loss of that identity as the manufacturing moves away. So I think we're all really interested in what's going to be said today, hearing some of Jane's poems perhaps, and I'm going to hand over to Chloe to start. So should we give a big lovely So thank you all for coming. It's really lovely to see such a big crowd for such a knotty and, uh, subject. And uh, what, um, what we do every um, month at Lebri is we have poetry salons where we uh, welcome a poet and, um, and chat to them. And so the idea is that um, I will ask questions, but also that we're um, a reasonably intimate group in um, a lovely intimate space. And so please feel free to join in and I'll be uh, keeping an eye out. You can either just, you know, pitch in with a question or give a signal. And um, I feel it must be a topic that is probably close to a, a lot of our hearts or a lot of people's hearts to think about or to ask questions about. So please do feel free. Uh, we won't wait till the end. Um, and if, you, if something springs to mind, uh, join in and feel free to contribute. So we're going to begin and end with poetry because that is the reason we're all here. And, uh, and then we'll have some conversation. So I'd like to hand over to Jane to open our event. Thank you, Chloe. Um, it's wonderful to be here at Ledbury. Um, I'm going to open with two poems. Um, one um, is called Here Once. That's the first one I'm going to read, um, both uh, from assembly lines. Here Once. Chasing the odours of burnt pocketbooks to teenage angst, plotted roughly sometime between glasnost and things can only get better. Led by the nose to the horse pool, no idea of escape. The shakings and tremblings in the hedges of something, something summers to come. In a reel of suburban dogs barking, gulls rising a V across the sunset in the near that bleeds umber and gold onto four walls, once long with Thatcherite shadows. And in the knowing that one day, it would all be in the middle distance, a seam of light struck to fade the poster of a one-hit wonder. The next poem I'd like to read um, is called Script Notes from the Lost Episode of the Future. Satellite images from the depths of space mark out an ex-industrial tundra, the chamois camouflage of enterprise zones, the vortex of estates and vast retail shacks, hitched up on borrowed cash, the foot of a burial chamber, not the font of a powerhouse. Zoom in on seized engines of heart-sick towns, hemorrhaging hoardings and economy food, knackered out with the plastic knickknackery and poverty, and trace the familiar terrain of utter defeat. Who won here isn't as obvious as who was beaten in battles fought and lost generations back. 
Sharp focus on heartlands become poundlands, groinlands, lost beyond the brash new suburbs pickpocketing each other, and unrecognisable to a visitor returning, light years on, following a storyline of broken pickets, museum banners, hope fossilised, dry lips incanting truths with no home, a long, slow whistle echoing in the dark matter of dead streets. Cut now to sepia crowds, gathered outside lit halls, ornate doors locked, double-barrelled and double-bolted. Cut to starched collar and cuff. Rolling newsfeed bleats a mockery of the voiceless. Hark at you. Noses up to the bright windows of aspirational ownership. Warm within the deep velvet radiance of obvious wealth. Without, hungry winter blows a coarse invective over its teeth. Thank you. So, I want to ask first of all um, about uh, class. What, what does that word mean for you and how do you place yourself? Um, I think... To me, class is something you recognise when you, most of all, when you come into contact with other environments where you suddenly realise your ordinary has become extraordinary, that you are an exception to the rule. And I have noticed this throughout my life, that the times that I've most often noticed um, class is when I'm a fish out of water, if you like, when I'm in situations where I don't know the rules. I don't know necessarily um, the language or the sort of territory of the place I'm in, perhaps, because I'm, I am slightly out of my comfort zone. Um, I think, to me, classes, it's a, a limiting structure. It's a structure of control, um, and it's a socio-economic structure that is so closely linked to so many other things as well. I mean, it's an intersectional thing. It's linked also to um, race and to um, gender and to all sorts of other things. Um, and I think it's, it's really important to see it in that broader aspect. Um, I think traditionally um, class has tended too often to be seen as white working class when actually that for a very long time that's never really been the case right um, so I think it's really important first of all to sort of see that too that it's and to talk about um, the work that might not have always been recognised within class that women's work as working class women was often not seen either um, so important to sort of see those intersections with, with class it's a very complicated thing I think it's a very fluid thing as well yeah. so my idea of who I am will change throughout a lifetime and will change depending on the environment I'm in, the education I receive the places I go, the opportunities I have or don't have and mm. whether class becomes um, something that limits my access to things or limits my chances of doing stuff and I think in most cases that's where class comes into play whether it's something that opens doors for you or closes doors to you yeah. um, on the whole and sort of where I place myself within that I find that quite <clears throat> sort of vexed really and yeah. I think for many people who've come from a working class background who find themselves I, I'm tremendously lucky I realise that, I know that I'm an exception to the rule in many ways. I'm very fortunate. I had university education before the £9,000 grants came in. Mm. I had um, local authority assistance to attend university. Um, I went on a... I, I did um, an arts foundation course that was, was supported by my local council that was co-funded by the government that meant I only paid perhaps £200 for a year's worth of education at my local art college. It was things like that that meant that I had opportunities... Um, I had very supportive parents who always valued education and reading and being self-taught. And mm. I realised all of these enabling factors helped me to overcome barriers that if I hadn't had those supportive mum and dad, brilliant teachers at school that lifted me up and opened doors for me and encouraged me. And at university too, people who perhaps recognised their own background mm. and opened doors for me. Right. Um, I think all of those people along the lines that have helped to break down those barriers have meant that I've 
so, so it becomes quite, also quite yeah. vexed then because the sense that you have been very fortunate to, to make your, your progress that you have made in life. Yes, um, and is that still available do, for people coming up now and the, these questions too? It is yeah. so complex, isn't it? Because, as you've said, class is something that um, might once have been uh, simply an idea of I, am I a working class person or, you know, those sort of three very clear distinctions mm. and now... There's, um, it's a more challenged question about where you put yourself. Is it um, also, is it simply becoming more a question of poverty and mm -hmm. or having money? Is it, is it coming, just, do you think it's changing at all to be a sort of simply financial question or do you feel there's still a sense when you talk about going to some place that you don't feel you belong, is that to do with language then or how you dress or what yeah. are the distinguishers? Do you... Is that something that, um, because there, you have poems where you talk about how, um, uh, of the uniform of, fa of factory labouring, the overalls mm -hmm. and the, the things that you carry that would identify you in the class? Or Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. And I think what we've seen in the last sort of, particularly since um, sort of the last 20 years especially, is, is that fracturing of those three definite classes and where you might belong within them, mm. um, and fracturing of identity within that too. So my partner worked till fairly recently, um, very recently in fact, in engineering, and he worked with people who, you know, were, were to all intents and purposes for most of us, we would think working class, didn't regard themselves as working class. They felt they were middle class because they didn't work in a warehouse. Right. They didn't work in a minimum wage job. Mm. They were earning sort of, you know, a higher wage in a, in a semi-skilled or skilled job. So therefore, yeah. people who traditionally seen themselves as unionised, labour voting, working class people had sort of seen themselves because they were slightly better off. Yeah. And they had, you know, sort of slightly more in terms of, like, say, sort of wealth and, and sort of position. They would see themselves as middle class. But whether somebody else who also sees themselves as middle class would see them as middle class. It's really, it, it's a huge thing, isn't it? And I think that is the fraction we've seen. Um, and increasingly, I think the thing that really concerns me is that massive, precarious part of our society mm. where people are very much, you know, within a, within a payslip of poverty yeah. in most cases and are, you know, living, trying to live on minimum wage jobs um, <laughs> of £7 an hour or, or in cases where they're working for companies that are doing things like um, uh, a sort of, you know, the new model of working where people are, are being paid by um, uh, certain, certain ways in terms of minimum, uh, zero hours contracts and yeah. things. Um, they're actually on less than minimum wage in yeah. most cases and being massively taken advantage of where there is no unionised labour either. Mm. Um, and that tradition has gone, that tradition of having union representation is, is much less prevalent now. Um, and I think that precarious part of society mm. um, that is probably what concerns me most really, that, that how, how do we change that? How do we... Um, alter that system where those people are constantly, you know, to, working full time and using a food bank. I know, yes, that's you it. Know. It's that, isn't it? And um, and uh, and when we um, heard your um, poem, the second poem you read, that's um, a vision of a of a, a place that you inhabit. And so it'd be really interesting to talk about um, how places are changing and these places that once had industries and now um, the architecture and how that all has changed. Mm -hmm. so could you say something about and your sense of your place as you experience those changes? I'm quite obsessed by history so uh, and sort of slightly uh, obsessed by the idea of archaeology as well and sort of you know, industrial archaeology, especially that I'm, I'm not an archaeologist. I'm not. I didn't study a history degree, but I did work in museums for a long time, and kind of that kind of love of history has never quite left me. And I am fascinated by the sort of landscapes where things have been and gone. Right. And we see that right through human history. Um, you know, you see that right from kind of Iron Age smelting, mm. you know, sort of remains right through to kind of you know massive boiler works or turbine works that have been abandoned or left. When I grew up in the in the mid nineties, um, post the eighties, early nineties recession, it had left the Midlands completely, um, you know, sort of covered really in lots of post industrial sites where those factories, those industries had moved out and moved on. Um, the factory works in most cases were just boarded up and left. Um, 
and there was a real sense of kind of the history of, of a place um, and of the story of, of that changing time written very, very close into that landscape. Um, a lot of that's actually gone or going or in the process going or it's been kind of gentrified and turned yeah. into sort of um, leisure or retail things or, or sort of flats or, or yeah. you know, so that, that process is happening right across um, the region too and in lots of places um, and that can be quite a mixed thing. Sometimes that can be, you know, redevelopment can be, can be good, it can be negative, it, it can have really mixed sort of things in with it. Um, but generally the thing that's been the biggest trend is to actually just flatten those sites yeah. and sort of to see then the big box retailers and the kind of yeah. uh, massive distribution parks now. Mm. So where I live, um, where previously there would have been, there, and there was lots of kind of turbine works and factories and places like that, lots of kind of uh, 19th, 20, early 20th century buildings, uh, a lot of that went. And on the outskirts of town, there's now these enormous kind of Amazon warehouse type buildings for companies like Gap and H&M and Marks and Spencers and Tesco because um, I live very near the Daventry International Rail Freight Terminal or DERFT as it's known mm. and you do have these kind of you know very very rapidly changing landscape and I think that then represents itself back into the jobs that those places are creating which generally are temporary or transitory um, people on short term contracts quite low pay um, yeah. You're in, uh, and, and similar in other ways, not, not to romanticise either mm. the previous era, because I think it's really important not to do that as well, because um, it was hard labour yeah. and it was um, long days in without sunlight inside yeah. um, on long shifts. My dad worked, you know, those shifts and, and in all kinds of places across the Midlands. So the where year. did he work? He was a where, what kind of places did he work in? Um, he worked at Jaguar Land Rover's last place he worked, and working backwards, he'd also worked at the GC in Coventry for a very long time, which sort of like rugby, right. the GC sort of employed huge amounts of the, the sort of town population. Yeah, and um, so almost everybody you know would work there. So he yeah. worked there for a long time. He also worked at Alfred Herbert's to start with right. um, in Coventry. Um, and he'd worked at transmissions company as well, so he'd done all kinds of things in, in oh, all kinds okay. of different places. Yeah, because the book obviously, obviously is assembly lines, mm. and um, and uh, it's hard. You it's, is it, it's is what is there any possibility of nostalgia over the um, work that was uh, an assembly line work? I mean, that is um, hard work. It is, and it takes a huge toll on people's bodies physically. Yeah. So I'm really keen not to romanticise it in any way because I think we should always be really honest about work. Yeah. Um, and particularly about factory and manual labour because it's quite easy to kind of create a sort of romantic narrative about that. And mm. I've always been quite careful not to do that because I know from mm. my own family experience that it, it can also be a place that's not only very hard work and very long hours, but there can sometimes be re a really damaging masculine culture in those places. Right. There can be bullying, yeah. a great deal of kind of pressure to work long hours and do shifts. Um, and, and sort of, you know, to, my dad talked about working in factories that in Coventry where, um, because of all of the bombing during the war, they painted, um, we were talking about this just last week, um, he remembers looking up at the glass in the slanted roofs to see um, countryside scenes oh painted on the underside of the glass. Um, because when uh, the Blitz was on, they wanted obviously those factories to look like countryside, so they'd actually painted um, these kind of rural scenes. So when he looked up, he could see trees and, and green and things painted just under the whitewash of these in outline. It all been painted over by then. You right. know, this was the mid sixties, but yeah. you could still just physically see those traces of it. So how and we were talking about how strange it was to be indoors all day, but to see this kind of false vista of the countryside above you, yeah, as well, yeah, and that trace of history. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, the book is fabulous with uh, with these echoes of history, and um, uh, and also and another thing that's very strong is um, a feeling of lost. Things that are lost and looking, searching, um, and a lot of the collection has poems about maps. Mm. Any lover of maps, this is such a wonderful um, celebration of that. But um, so, could you talk a bit about how you're trying, how that your writing is is a way of trying to discover or look for what's going, the future yeah. going to look like? I guess, or I guess a part of it comes from a connection with John Clare. 
And I, I'm a huge fan of John Clare, the Northamptonshire poet. And there is, I recommend to everybody the Jonathan Bates um, biography of Jonathan Clare because, first of all, it breaks down a lot of the stereotypes about um, John Clare and, and about his poetry, but also about his life and about some of the mythology that was built up around him, um, in many ways a victim almost of his own publisher's marketing as the peasant poet. Um, he was a, a very skilled, very intelligent man. Um, but his deep connection to landscape and the severance he felt when he moved away from Helpston, it, it, in the book it's like this kind of, you can feel this rift that happens for him when he loses contact with place. Mm. And for me the Midlands are like that. Um, they are a place that I feel are quite unexplainable contact with. I can't quite... It, it's sometimes intangible, really. But what I like about maps is the sense of being able to find things, to see things afresh. Mm. So if I walk a canal, I'm going to see the landscape very differently to how I would see it from my car. Mm. And particularly in the Midlands, where... I mean, both that the Midlands is kind of cut up by motorways and roads and I actually really love car travel I love going places and, and travelling um, the motorways too, I'm a big fan of service stations but um, I do also really like to see it differently I like to take different train routes I like to be on disused canals and uh, you know little paths that show me things differently, I love exploring things I love finding stuff in the landscape so for me maps were like when I was a child I used to um, be in geography class I can remember sitting there with the Ordnance Survey map, just daydreaming about these places on the map and what it'd be like to go there and find them. And I think also because, like, when we were growing up, like our, our sort of our Saturday, Sunday outings to go places would involve getting in the car, a bit like Midlands kids describes, and going yeah. off somewhere for a magical mystery tour to, to see somewhere or just find something. And quite often that something would be a walk along the canal that might have an ice cream at the end of it, or you might walk somewhere and discover a, a barn or an old building or a church in the landscape you didn't know were there so all those things, I, I think that's why I'm a bit obsessed with maps and it's that sense again of, I think there's magic and beauty where you want to find it and mm. for me I find it quite close to home and I, I kind of like the fact that the Midlands slightly resists being put into a box of what it is Right. it's urban but it's rural Yeah. Um, it, it kind of has all of these sort of wonderful pieces of wildlife right next to city it has all these layers of history mm. within it that are kind of built over or fenced off mm. that you have to climb over you know to, uh, a sort of fence to get into yes and I did wonder whether you've done a bit <laughs> of that particularly in your ch childhood exploring uh, des deserted buildings or factories some of the poems well let's have a, a poem or two then perhaps um, what you feel either around the maps or and um, uh, and I'll ask anybody who wants to join in with any questions Questions um, after we've heard maybe a poem that Jane would like to read. I'll read Love Song for the Ordnance oh, Survey. Oh, lovely, yes. <laughs> that seems like it might be quite fitting, really. Love Song for the Ordnance Survey. What measure of time is sluicing through the dappling rings of immortal hills? What weight the hollow hearted burial mounds, Saxon naves? Felled steeples, tribal hill forts, ventilation mine shafts, brick-borne water towers, analogue Cold War transmitters, pillbox viewpoints. What radius the boundary arcs, the stamina of forests' green retreat, the beaten back at the speckled blots of settlement, the shaded sloped river ruts, the symmetry of hangars. What current the canals? Descending the lock's silent shift, coal boats and Staffordshire China rising in the hulls and sidelined, quickened by the railways, rising beside motorways, rising onwards. What depth the medicinal baths, restoring spars, sought by new townsfolk, the tumulus of mill races, gone save for the great and working gears, turning nothing in damp, summering fields. And what volume the settlements, slumbering in bracketed old word italics, inherited after other names, lost or erased, the monikers of place declassified. What velocity the shifting coastlines, vanishing faster than any paper can skip a heartbeat to, and the winter peaks, absolved in mists that can neither be seen or heard, let alone measured. 
Of all the demarcations multiplied, kept in their latitudinal squares, of each known and unknown quantity, let us sing of detail and capacity, the maps measured love. Fabulous poem. Has anybody got anything they'd like to... Yes. I was coming back to clubs. And the working class. I associate the working class to an extent with um, with mass industrial employment, as opposed to the pre-existing situation of craft industrial employment. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your um, your view of, of, of the crafts, not I mean the building crafts, if you like, bricklaying, masonry, black, blacksmithing, um, that kind of that are still existing yeah. and in sense in some, some sense are resurging a little bit as we perhaps the old mainstream mass employment you know, opportunities decline. And I wonder if you thought at all about the relationship of those to your to your interest in history and landscape yeah. and, 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 and what's been left behind. Mm. Is there anything to say about I think that's kind of where we come to that point where the sort of industrial revolution kind of caused this severance, particularly but also between arts and crafts as well, because if we think about the way that art and craft would have been much closer um, and that the arts would have belonged much more comfortably within a craftsperson's life. So we think about churches and church building and um, the kind of pre-industrial revolution landscapes where quite often the people doing the carvings, doing the stonework, those people had a real sense of both the stories of the Bible, but also the stories of their community. And when you go into any church and you see those beautiful carvings, you're really aware that you're looking at the faces of real people that they were surrounded by in their time. So I think that, that they had a very much less of a distinction between the idea of high art and craft being you know, a sort of a, a different thing. They had, I think, a much closer sense of the two being much closer together, an artisan's understanding of that. But also that I think the divorce between arts and crafts has been along gender lines as well. So the, the idea of handcrafts, if you like, of women's work, so often being sort of something that was put... And again, a class thing too, that women's handcrafts in making and crafting things were often not considered of equal value um, in terms of, of what they made. So I think there's a, an argument there too about sort of working lives and, and women's lives having always been there and always been doing those things but having been under the surface as well and to have been um, not categorised or valued in the same way. So for me it's sort of a sense that I mean, I think, you know, we, we always need to have craft because, I, and I think certainly there's a relationship between poetry and craft, and I think we're coming to an age where, with what's happening with our environment, with what's happening with our, um, with our climate change and our economic situations, our political situation, we're in a situation of great turmoil in the world at the moment, and there is a danger of becoming disconnected from the making of things mm. that separates us from being able to to do stuff which sort of worries me you know sort of in terms of how we um sort of plunder the earth as well and we don't always live um as in in relationship as we could and again i think that's very much down to the industrial revolution's kind of schism really in it in in how it's it's changed our relationship to what we make mm. and there's a huge change as well if you do a job where you make something and you see something at the end of it to a job where you never see any sort of verifiable actual output for your labour. If you're mm. completely divorced from that, that can make you very unhappy and it can be, feel yeah. like um, a very thankless, unhappy well, business. Those days come to an end, right, with the post society. <laughs> so so what's the, what happens now in terms of the, the, the working class and its employment? Well, I think we're in a situation where the that though even those sort of, like we were saying earlier, about the precarious class of, of people who actually are in the situation where they, they um, have very poor wages, I think that all has to change. I think we have to really try to alter society. I don't have any answers really how, other than that I think we need a massive change that puts people and societies and communities and people's health and well-being and existence first. That's it, and, and poetry. <laughs> and, and yeah, and to see that... How, how that can 
it's part of our existence. It's part of our our sort of ability to breathe is connected to our ability to think and create and be, and that we're happier as human beings when we have the freedom and time of of our lives to be able to do that, rather than just being in a situation where we are constantly. If you're poor, all you can think about is surviving. Yeah. If you have no money, all you can do is get to the next day and hope that you have enough um, wages to keep the lights on and keep the, the water running. Um, you don't, uh, you know, it, so I think we need to change people's lives so that they don't have to just exist or survive, <coughs> that people can have valued, enriched lives with without those challenges that I think extreme poverty is imposing on a huge number, millions of people in this country currently. Yeah. You've got a question and then um, yes. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't really a question, it was just an observation. Um, I spent some time in Athens last year where obviously uh, jobs have just disappeared. Um, and although I didn't study it, um, people were telling me that the, what you might call middle class just disappeared overnight. You've either got money or you haven't. Um, kind of those people up there and everybody else. Yeah. Like a collapse almost, isn't it? It's like a sort of sense that, you know, that, and I, I think we see this increasingly that people are using their wealth to isolate themselves from the rest of society and to make sure that they're okay. Um, my question with that is then what happens to everybody else who's without? Um, I think it creates a, a very, very unhappy and very dangerous situation, doesn't it, as well? Which is the, and that sense of that vast inequality in the middle opening up rather than closing, you know. That's, that's the massive issue, isn't it, really, with that have-and-have-not situation. There's great um, pockets of artists mm. uh, all around Athens just mm. taking over buildings that are empty and yeah. 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 Um, Just going back to what you were saying about um, that we shouldn't romanticise mm -hmm. um, those very, very long, arduous days um, at, uh, working in factories... Um, one of the things I think is interesting now is if we go back even further and we go back to days when before the factory mm. acts, etc. I think we're almost going back to that, but in the professional sector, um, where it, I mean, I'm a retired nurse now, but I used to work in a GP surgery. And one thing that struck me in recent years is the number of professional people that I used to see who were talking about working life, their working life mm. being these incredibly long days because of emails, because of your virtual, your office now being at home, because of it keeping going, not having breaks. Mm. Um, so we've almost now taken what was pre-factory at time in factories and putting it into professional people's mm. life, which seems crazy to me. Yeah, there's no. been this massive shift, hasn't mm. there? And a huge, huge change in how we, how we work and how we're expected to work as mm. well. Mm. Um, and I think also a sense of, of wrongly placing great value on overwork. So there's almost like a, a kind yeah. of sense that if you work yeah. a 60-hour week, that yes. that's what you, you have to do if you want to be successful yes. and uh, to the detriment of your own mental yes. and physical health. And that's really damaging. And the expectation that people will work later into their lives, mm. that they won't have that time to enjoy things or to, to actually, like, the value, the non-monetary value of family life, of spending time outdoors, of being with in your community, with your friends, with your neighbours, being able to do stuff, be on your own even, you know, all of those things that an increase, a society that only places value on time that is spent producing money mm. or in, in the service of, of an entire system is one that leaves us with no time to dream or think, which is also quite worrying really, um, and how we sort of try to make space really for our creative selves, for the the part of ourselves that isn't the 9 to 5 or in many cases now the sort of 6 to 8pm job like we're talking about mm -hmm. as well and the sort of breaking down of those barriers really um, mm -hmm. in terms of, of labour and, and how how those restrictions sort of seem to have peeled away almost without anything, I mean we have noticed but without restriction almost yeah, mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting in your um, books you've got 
um, your dog or the uh, dogs and, and animals are a kind of um, way of talking a bit about that, aren't yeah. they? What we value and how we um, treat creatures and things that can't uh, speak for themselves, which places speak, you speak for places too, so the poems speak for places, for, for animals and for things that are not able to kind of, so there's the wonderful poem about the uh, racehorses, the Irish racehorses that are uh, um, a kind of victim of um, the austerity that happened in Ireland. Mm. That, that. So um, I, want, I don't know, would you care to share maybe one or a poem along either of those lines to, so people can... Kind of, uh, and there's also a wonderful poem about uh, the hearts of everyone in this room, which I, I think is a, a marvellous thing about that as well, that we're all, we've all got these passionate, beating hearts to work and to make things and feel proud of those things. And yet that so many people just aren't having that opportunity. I think that seems... The hearts of everyone in this room are curled as little fists flexing under ribs, moving the blood's freight beneath skin, between bridge spans of bone and muscle, filling each with their own fierce song. Each, beginning with another's jump start, takes the swing and fall of days to come as a boxer's skipping rope whistling through air, our simple agnostic metronome's prayer. Companion, floor father, our own invigilator, flooding the body with a full spectrum's light, tuning the radar of his echolocation to quicken in the presence of another's quickening beat. Proof then, even in our age of surfaces, that what is hidden Messy within still matters. So it's a wonderful thing, and and it also um, shows um, what is in these poems as well, which is anger. And I think that's something that's really exciting about poetry at the moment: that people are starting to write poems that are political, or and are, are kind of willing to express a sort of anger that's quite uh, raw. Mm. Um, so I, I wonder if you talk a bit about that and the, cho and the decisions that you're making as you're writing to allow that. So there's a wonderful poem, there's a wonderful poem about, um, uh, well, Brexit in a way, or written. So could you talk a bit about those poems? And yeah, I, I, I really I find that quite often the politics can sometimes weave its way in unexpected ways. And, and part of the reason that animals appear quite often is to do with that. I'm writing a new sequence of poems at the minute called Class Notes, and within these I'm sort of finding all kinds of animals are suddenly appearing. I've got a walrus in one of them. I've got some, I think, some more dogs. Sorry, there's a lot of dogs in my poems. Um, but there's some more animals kind of popping up because they're quite useful ways of sort of thinking about... Sometimes I try to write things about, like, a situation that's happened to me um, or something where I've encountered something that I felt I wanted to write about that was about either class or, or politics or about the current sort of situation and I often find like a, a framework to put it within because if you don't I'm, I'm very conscious of not being a hectoring finger pointing mm. kind of poet because actually I don't have the answers mm. necessarily that's the, the really important thing but I, I am trying to think about it mm. and I think because that's what poetry helps us do. It help, it's, a, it's a tool for helping us think about things. It's a tool for connecting with others. It's a tool for saying, this is how I felt about something. Did you feel this way too? Mm. And it, it's partly a thinking device for me sometimes too. I find my, my thought processes work through the poems to sometimes find, you know, not a solution in any way, but sometimes to find what I'm trying to feel about something or where I am with things. So the animals pop up quite often as a way of kind of circumnavigating being um, too direct or mm. too obvious, um, or sometimes to protect the innocent or guilty. Um, there was a poem I was trying to write about something where I'd seen something in a, in a job that I'd had that, mm. where I felt that class had been a real barrier to somebody getting job they should have got basically and I wanted to write about it but I didn't want to write about it obviously so that's where the sea lion came in and I actually <laughs> ended up writing this really strange poem but it was it, I also like to use humour because I think that that humour is very important it, it's it's also quite a Midlands thing to do because I think we are quite self-deprecating in the Midlands. We, we like to use sarcasm and humour to, to sort of joke about things and when things are quite tough, you know, it's a way of kind of modulating or handling it. Um, that the kind of, um, I think, 
uh, there's sort of like almost like the oven gloves you're putting on to pick up something that's a little bit too hot. So you're either using the humour to do that, or you're using the analogies or the similes. But I, I think actually the, the, it's really a great time for poetry because mm. people are turning to it as a way to kind of understand, to articulate, to express themselves, to find a way of trying to untangle the situation we're in, yeah. and to you know, as humans, make connections with each other in, in, and to revalue language in an age where language is increasingly devalued or poisoned um, by the political structures that are all around us at the moment. Mm. Um, mm. Yes? Um, do you think, all the time that we have the institution of monarchy, that that's going to firmly keep our class structure uh, in the place it is, because it kind of psychologically and structurally keeps us all in our place, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's certainly, personally I feel it's quite a damaging and toxic thing within within British society, um, that's quite a personal view, um, but I do think that there's a system, a, a very ancient system there of kind of kowtowing to a, a sort of system of knowing your place, of not rising above where you're put. Um, and creating a, a sort of a sense that somehow some people are worth more than others that until we come to terms with that and I don't really, again, I don't really think I have any great solutions to that other than um, I certainly think it's a, a, a quite damaging thing to us I don't think we're able as a society to always handle it in a mature way um, it quite often brings out the worst I think and mm. I mean, again, that's quite a personal opinion, but I, I do think until we have a very, very open reckoning, mm. both with our history yeah. and with our systems, yeah. we're never going to change things in this country. It's always going to be this way, and there's always going to be a, a lucky few who fight their way up. Yeah. Um, who are held up as well. Yeah. It's fine, actually. Oh, well, actually, yeah. look, social mobility <laughs> works because these five people <laughs> did really well this year, but, you know, yeah. and, and that, that's always going to be a huge, huge issue, I think, until we have some kind of meaningful, peaceful change. Yeah. I think. And education is a, there's a lovely uh, sequence of poems, um, national curriculum, <laughs> uh, because obviously education is the other thing that is, um, uh, you know, and, and we can talk about austerity as well in, mm. in that sense that, um, yeah, the losers are not. Mm. We want to talk by our minute, and he said, if, if it weren't for free education, I wouldn't be here. Mm. And I wonder, you're talking about rigid society, and I wonder how much the effect of having to pay for your education mm. is holding people back. Mm. Hugely, hugely. Yeah. I mean, uh, without both the funding that went into schools in, in the sort of late 90s, I, I saw a huge change. I, I started secondary school in 1996. And there were a lot of things that I think went wrong with New Labour and I think a lot of things that were very questionable that happened. But I think there were also a huge amount of things that did happen in 97, 98 that I actually saw growing up as this huge monumental shift, one of which was just the enormous amount of cash that went into schools. Yeah. The school I attended when I first started, before... Um, the new Labour government, the first year, 1996, we were taught in portable cabins. We had a large 1950s school that was coming apart, that was badly painted, that in a lot of cases was slightly decrepit and leaking, yeah. where we shared very old, very used textbooks between two or three of us. Within the, by the time I left that school, it was massively modernised. There was a huge, huge sort of shift um, we had amazing teachers as well. I mean, throughout that period, even despite the lack of funding, I was so lucky because we had teachers who were not overworked, demoralised <laughs> as much as perhaps they are now. Um, and we had um, just amazing people who were inspiring. And also representation, I think, matters. Having mm. a teacher who's come from a similar background mm. who can sort of encourage you really matters. I remember one of my teachers, Mr Williams, um, who... I had come from Coventry himself. I was living in rugby. I, I was born in Coventry, lived there till I was five, and then we moved to rugby, and I grew up in rugby. So when I was a teenager, I went to school in rugby. 
and my teacher, Mr. Williams, had come from Coventry. And I always kind of liked the fact that he was very open, that he'd been a young dad and he'd then kind of gone into teaching late and he'd studied night classes to become a teacher. And he was very working class, very proud to be working class, very proud to lift his students up. And he encouraged me to apply as my mum and dad did as well, um, as my other teachers did, to apply for university, and he encouraged me specifically to apply for Warwick, which mm. was one of the factors I actually ended up studying creative writing, because those teachers read my creative work mm. at the age of 14, 15, and said, this is really good, you should think about going to university. Mm. And, and it was the fact that yeah. that representation that these people had <clears throat> themselves yeah. experienced some form of mobility socially, but then had not only that put that time into inspiring kids. But if you work teachers 60 hours a week and, and don't pay them very well, they're not going to feel quiet. <laughs> you know, we have to value those public sector workers. I feel really strongly about the public sector as well. And I know this is slightly off topic, but I worked in it for nine years and I just saw the enormous damage that austerity was doing. Appalling. And, and the way that it was basically pulling the foundations from everything bit by bit. Mm. And it was more the, the glacial sort of process of it just... Gradually, so almost people weren't noticing, but I could see from the inside things being pulled away, children's centres being closed, sure stuff being taken away. When you take all of that away from a society, what happens? It just, it collapses. Yeah. But this is being perpetuated if we were to consider the research evidence around what we're conveniently talking about, the working classes mm -hmm. in this country, that we, we know, we absolutely categorically know the most distress is experienced by individuals, families in socially deprived working, mm. working and having working class backgrounds. But we also know they're least likely to receive appropriate support mm -hmm. yeah. based on a whole range of aspersions that are cast on working class individuals and families. Mm. And, and I appreciate your, your notion of our creativity and well-being. Um, but, but I think there's a kind of strong correlation with that least likely to be happening mm. like with and in systems that seem to be steering themselves away and casting aspersions on working class individuals being um, more somatically focused, less, less verbally able. Yeah, I think that's uh, a real I, I danger. I think it's an incredible indictment. It's not going away, mm -hmm. that's increasing. Yeah, it's a, an opening gap, isn't it? And I think in terms of also the arts world's understanding or connection with, with creativity in working class people, there's often huge assumptions made about people's ability to engage with stuff. Sometimes the, the sense of presumption that is made well, it's about... Inaccurate. Well, yeah. You know it's a bit yeah. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And yet our services are still, in fact, operationalised around it range of assumptions where individuals from working class backgrounds are um, seen as, as requiring a lower key intervention. Yeah. So there's kind of no stage. Mm. Yeah, and also, I mean, in terms of education, yeah. uh, a working class person is mm. going to see a barrier if there if there are fees to be paid. Mm. If you have money, you can't see what the problem is. Yeah. It will be in tax later on or whatever. But as a working class person, it, 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 it's an absolute inhibition. I think that's really important because, I mean, like I said earlier, I went to university in a time when the fees were really um, relatively low. I was the first year of having to pay fees, but they weren't as high as they are now. They weren't, weren't anywhere near. And I did have assistance with it too, which meant I could go to university. Um, could I go now? Would it be worth me trying to go now? Would I have the same sense that it was something I could do? Would my mm. teachers even encourage me to go? Yeah. Would they feel perhaps that they might be kind of saddling me with lots of debt for the sense of, oh, you, you, you could go and write? Well, um, yes, yeah. would you choose a creative <laughs> subject exactly. now? Yeah, yeah, that's a huge thing. And I think also that then that creates further barriers that you don't then have people being able to go into creative or professional things and our sort of creative life as a nation gets kind of very um, monocultural if, we, yeah. if we're kind of limiting people's access to stuff. And yeah. another thing that goes with being working class is fear mm. around money or yeah. not having enough money and that in turn impacts the ability to be creative yeah. because there's so much energy that is actually in a fearful place doing yeah. something else. 
that's a really surviving. Yeah, yeah, that survival thing and that fear of being made redundant, that fear of what will happen when the when the paychecks run out. And mm. that's something that never quite leaves you because I think that's probably the most frightening thing about taking a creative career, if mm. you like, if you come from that background, because there is no safety net. If it goes wrong, how are you going to pay bills? Um, I, I mean, you know, that, it's a huge risk to set anything up. Yeah. So, or to take a creative career, um, it's not so bad if you have kind of a, you know, a little bit of money behind you, but it's a lot more terrifying if you're going out there with no kind of sense of safety. I think part of the answer to that is, is something that I've noticed with people in my daughter's generation. She's a blacksmith, but there's not enough money in blacksmithing to, to, to see it as a, as a career, as the middle classes would see it, or she might have seen it as as a child, so she's, what she's looking for is not a career but a lifestyle, mm. and, and so the blacksmithing is part of her income, mm. but only part, and the rest of it is, is gardens, and, and a bit of woodwork, and, and, and a wee bit of teaching perhaps at the evenings, mm. and everything rolls in, and it's centred on a house with yeah. a large garden, and a shed at the end with a, with, with a small forge. But it's very hard to have a lifestyle if you can't afford to eat or pay your rent, and for many, many sort of urban mm you know people who are trying to start out in small towns and also like we were talking a little bit about publishing and access mm. to that if you're based in a small town in the midlands or north trying to get into industries that are generally based in london or generally require sort of a degree level education um, or, or have a tendency a bias towards um middle class candidates it's really really hard to get that and particularly if you're just trying to pay your rent and live and eat. Um, that's that's yeah, it's interesting. And you've got poems that talk about the, the landscape and how that looks and how does it inspire people or to think about. You know, I do believe that the factories you describe, where you use the word chancels, that there's almost like they, you almost merge them with the idea of a church. That if you where you your parents work or there's elements of beauty that you see in buildings that must surely help you to think I might be part of something like that but if what you see is Poundlands the, you know the, the retail parts then you know what is there's that thing of how is are we nurturing imagination or creativity by what people can see around them as well and how do we make space for children at a really young age for those yeah. language and linguistic skills yeah. and things to be nurtured, to be encouraged? Yeah. Because that happens at home, it happens at school, but if mm. you know, yeah. it's not there, how, yeah. how do we open that? And I, yeah. I think that imaginative things that we really you know, have, to, have to nurture, and if we lose, then it's such a huge part of us that we lose access to. Yeah, and, and we lose the voices that could speak. And mm. I think we've got a question from... Uh, I was, I've been very interested. It seems to have been mainly based around the impact on the urban society. Um, you referred to John Clare. Mm. Is there anybody writing about the age of austerity in rural areas? Lack of bus services, mm. lack of facilities, lack of post offices, yeah. lack of cash machines, etc., etc. I mean, taking the historical thing, going back to the the Industrial Revolution, people were drawn out of mm. the countryside into the cities because they could earn wages, etc., etc. Yeah. One almost gets the impression that somewhere along the line we're going to have a totally deserted countryside because people will be forced mm. into the urban environment. Yes. Is, is that something that you feel you're looking back to John Clare, that if you like, he was the start of saying, wait, this has got to stop? Um, partly, I think, because as well, I grew up the Midlands isn't somewhere that's solely urban and my poetry as well isn't something that I solely see as an urban thing um, I think because I grew up on the edge of stuff I grew up on the edge of towns and a lot of these towns as well like when my dad was growing up in Coventry he <coughs> the enormous kind of uh, places that they built for people to work bordered the countryside of Coventry so his childhood was part city but also part urban yeah, part rural sorry as well so um, and for me that was the experience too that I was sort of both town and country a little bit and you can't really help but do that in small towns because they're not really big enough to be either they're not beautiful kind of you know scenes of uh, sort of pastoral sort of um, wilderness or anything but they also have these little kind of um, through the, the 
canal channels through the railway, these little kind of cuttings of, of beauty and of mm. landscape kind of intervening in them. Mm. Um, I think that poets are kind of looking at that and seeing that combination. I think that there's a lot of writing that's sort of seeing that um, sort of space now, the, the Edgelands as the um, yeah. Paul Farley. And back gardens. Um, you have back a lovely poem too. about your back garden and how the neighbours <laughs> might be judging the, wild, the wilderness <laughs> and the wilds of your... Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think there's a huge... Um, rural poverty issue mm. as well and it's really easy to just think that the, the poverty issue is only in towns or cities and yet um, there are people who are stranded in, in rural places by like say lack of transport, I mean our lack of internet access, it's as soon as you start to look at the access of things as soon as there isn't a working transport network, we look at what's just happened in the Lake District with the Northern Rail um, sort of fiasco there, entire communities being cut off by lack of rail. If we don't have um, good phone signal, if we don't have internet so people can work effectively or get information effectively and cheaply, I, mean, I believe we should have nationwide free Wi-Fi if we want to change stuff. We should have a nationalised rail service if we want to change stuff. If we want to make people's lives more connected, we've got to invest in that infrastructure. And I think rural poverty, particularly where you have somewhere very beautiful, where you have small communities of, of working poor who can no longer afford to buy houses the places they've grown up because of the massive inflation and second homes and all of those things. There's huge sort of forgotten communities and, and there's a lot of homelessness in the countryside too. I, I came across this myself a couple of years ago when I realised that there, there's a lot of kind of people off the radar in our society and you go out to farms where people are sleeping caravans on the back of farmland you know, 10 or 12 caravans where people are living because they can't afford to buy homes. Mm. And I think you're right, there's so much hidden poverty. Well, I'm thinking the education. I mean, mm. I, I've just moved from North Shropshire, and the, the policy was all country schools should be closed and they're bust into the mm. town, mm. which is, to me, it would have been much more economic to have bust the kids out of towns into the villages, but that's beside the point. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is an element that, you know, you've got to travel, you've got to pay in effect yeah. to go and be educated. Mm. And that's yeah. from the age of five, yeah. four and a half. By the time you get to 15, mm. Mm. Yeah. You, you, you're beginning to say, well, what's the value in carrying on with yeah. this? Mm. Mm. So, yeah. Um, I mean, that's the major area I, I, I get the most concerned about. Mm -hmm. Because the communities have been destroyed. Yes, that's it. It's the human cost, which I think you do write about so beautifully. We're going to finish, I think. Um, if you did have a question that you haven't had a chance to answer, I think, uh, to ask, Jane, well, you will stay, sign books yes. and chat to people. So, um, but I think it would be lovely to finish with um, some poems. Mm. So let's... Um, the Midlands does mean a huge amount to me, and it is, is the, the sort of in terms of the Roy Fisher who said Birmingham is what I think with. I kind of feel that that very much. I understand that. Um, I think the Midlands is what I think with. Um, so I'm going to finish with a poem called Homing, um, and it is very much about that sense of place. It's about class. It's about finding where you feel you you are in a way, putting yourself on the map, which I think is sometimes a really important thing to know. And I love the Midlands. I love it for its non-conformism. I love it for its rebellious streak and its refusal to be categorised. And I, I love it for its accents, which can change by the mile. You can go from you know, one place to another, and the accent and the language and the phrasing completely alter. Um, it's always slightly frustrating when everyone thinks that everyone from Coventry sounds a bit like a Brummie, um, which they, they don't. Um, my mum has the most beautiful Coventry accent. My dad has a Coventry accent with a lovely Irish twang in it, which I adore. Um, I love the fact that you know, we have such a rich, vibrant sort of mix of things in the Midlands, mix of communities and heritages and traditions um, and languages and people. Mm -hmm. It's our greatest asset um, and I'm very happy to live here in many ways. So this is my, it, it's kind of my love song to returning home, a little bit like the homing pigeons in Liz Berry's poem mm. and this poem is called Homing. It is slow and calcifying as Midlands tap water you don't notice it until one day you realise. You don't belong in these manicured places, belonging to a wilder chorus that cannot be found here, 
In between a choice of demitasse spoons or matching stationery, sugared whispers, where the fault lines of class are never far from the surface of conversation, though it will ache to know this. Odd, then, this squareness of feeling, this round wholeness of being apart, homesick for a place where there are no manners to feign. Go and trust yourself to carry the streets to where the terraces loop with love's familiar brogue, where a lone bird sings to catch a reel of itself echoing. <laughs>